This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest annual call-in show, New Year's edition. No script or rigmarole uh, of the usual kind for this episode. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hello, Julia. Seasons greetings. Happy holidays. Hello, hello. By the time our listeners hear this, we will be in the future, 2023. I know. Amazing, right? Uh, And of course, Dana Stevens is uh, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana, you're always in the future. You live (laughs) weeks, if not eons ahead of the rest of the human race. I begrudgingly beam back every week to talk to you, (laughs) too. Exactly. Future woman, Dana Stevens. Uh, Okay. So I have to say, just as by way of introduction, I think this is along with the strut, summer strut, my favorite uh, episode of the year, certainly one of them. Should we get right to it? Just dig in, make a call-in show? Let's roll. Let's do it. All right. Let's go to the first question. What do we got? Hi, Culture Gap Fest. This is Liz from Melbourne, New Jersey. And my question for each one of you is, what quotes from culture do you use in your everyday lives as a form of communication with others. Some favorites in our household, for example, are Bob, it's time to engage from The Incredibles and you can't always get what you want from The Rolling Stones. Thanks. Ooh, okay. Who wants to nab this one first? Um, I've got a bunch, possibly because I'm married to someone who also works in culture. I don't know why. I think most of them actually come from my husband, but... Among the things we say are too late Liz Lemon, which was a line from something in 30 Rock. I don't even really remember what, but anytime anybody is too late for anything or it's too late for anybody to tuck a final dirty dish in the dishwasher or get in on the (laughs) scrambled egg order that's being whipped up, it's too late Liz Lemon. Um, The other one that we use all the time is a Simpsons reference and we'll probably age out of this one. Although maybe not now that we've got a new bibbit in the house, but basically anytime anybody spells anything out loud to avoid the comprehension of children, which obviously no longer works for our nine year olds. Um, but you know, if you say like, Oh, should we let them have C A N D Y or whatever? Uh, we throw back to, uh, this immortal scene from the Simpsons and maybe I will just play it for you guys. So you can get the full, full effect. Hold on. I don't think we're talking about love here. We're talking about S-E-X in front of the C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N. Sex cauldron. I thought they closed that place down. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, anytime either of us tries to spell something to avoid (laughs) comprehension by the children, um... The other one of us says, sex cauldron. <laughs> they close that place down <laughs> in our best crusty voice. And then the children are like, what's a sex cauldron? <laughs> so that one really is not. Sometimes I feel like you do these for efficiency in speech <laughs> or like efficiency of communication. But this one is inevitably inefficient because it results in the children being like, what's that? What's sex? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that really opens up a whole new cauldron of worms we can't resist it though we will never nothing is ever spelled without us referring to that um 
There's another line from uh, 30 Rock where one character says, here's what gives me pause. And then another character looks in them and says, those look like hands to me. Oh, my God. That is a groaner. But but that's also a kind of, you know, go to, you know, dad slash mom joke, pop cultural reference. You need one groaner and you you definitely have one. All right. I can definitely jump in here. I mean, I honestly feel like my family communicates two thirds of the time in some version of quote from something, but often it's something that's just kind of passing through something we've just recently seen or, you know, a scene that my daughter's working on kind of catches fire and we start quoting it. But there are some also just old chestnuts that have been around for years. So to reference those, one of them, of course, is also from The Simpsons, which, you know, will, if nothing else, will live on forever as a, a quote machine for people to use in their everyday lives. And I think the primary one that we use from that, which has been sort of one of my, my mottos for a couple decades now, is a line from the, the famous and classic, I believe, sixth season episode of The Simpsons, A Star is Burns, where Mr. Burns makes a movie about his own life called a <laughs> Burns for All Seasons, <laughs> directed by Senor Spielbergo, who's like the low-rent Spielberg that he's hired to, to direct his, his autobiographical movie. And uh, and in a, a famous line, right, everybody, everybody boos the movie because it's terrible. But then Hans Molman, one of my favorite minor Simpsons characters, who's the little wrinkle-faced guy who walks around town with a cane, says, I was saying boo earns. <laughs> Remember, because Mr. Burns <laughs> insists that he's not being booed, that the crowd is yelling boo earns. And then this one little guy in the corner actually was. Smithies, are they booing me? Uh, no, they're saying boo earns. Boo earns. Are you saying boo or boo earns? I was saying balloons. <laughs> so somehow, whenever there's sort of like a wan moment that you're left out, or you're not participating in something, or you miss the joke, you know, you're, you're Hans Molman in the corner saying boo earns. So <laughs> that one gets used a great deal. And it's usually me who's Hans Molman in that formulation because I missed out on, on a joke or something. Um, Otherwise, I think our two most durable family movie quotes are probably from the same movie, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is a huge, huge favorite in our family. I think we've talked about this on the show because I know Steve can't stand Wes Anderson or anything by him. I myself have a kind of mixed and complex relationship to him as a filmmaker where I find him both completely original and always interesting and also sometimes really annoying and mannered and and stuck in a rut. But Fantastic Mr. Fox to me is one of his best films and is also just a children's classic uh, that my daughters loved since she was a little kid. Um, so the two Fantastic Mr. Fox lines that probably get brooded about the most are... Well, this one's handy in many, many moments, I think, of, of domestic life. There's something that Mrs. Fox, voiced by Meryl Streep, says at a moment when she realizes that her husband, Mr. Fox, voiced by George Clooney, is up to no good, that he's stealing chickens with, with his boys again, and, you know, that he's slipping back into his old ways of thievery. And she says, it's all in Meryl Streep's delivery, but she says, if what I think is happening is happening... It better not be. <laughs> it's just <laughs> such good delivery. And obviously, when you have a kid in the house, there is always something that you can say that about. <laughs> so that one gets dusted off quite frequently. The other is just a random line that someone says, can't remember which character in Fantastic Mr. Fox, because for one of Mr. Fox's elaborate schemes of how to go and steal chickens, he has to lure these beagles, these guard beagles away from the place they're supposed to be guarding with blueberries. And uh, and there's just this moment, oh, it's Mr. Fox who says it, where he just shrugs in a very Clooney-esque debonair fashion and says, beagles love blueberries. <laughs> and so <laughs> when, 
never <laughs> blueberries are brought out and served in any fashion. You have to shrug and say beagles love blueberries. And the the great coda to that is that after decades of saying beagles beagles love blueberries on every occasion possible, my daughter, who's now sixteen, had a friend sleepover, a good friend from her school, high school, and. They were feeding our dog blueberries at some point during the evening. And what did this girl say? But beagles love blueberries. And I just did a double take and said, did you just say beagles love blueberries from Fantastic Mr. Fox? And that's when I realized that the two of them were meant to be soulmates. Oh, my God. I love it. Um, but my go-to Simpsons, like for some reason, it just stayed with me forever, is they've uh, Homer has been left alone with the kids and he loses the baby. <laughs> Of course, he's in a complete panic, not really because of the, you know, per perhaps future total non-existence of his small child, but what Marge is going to do to him when she comes back. And um, he, he, I think it's because of some totally irresponsible behavior that he's engaged in with Barney, you know, the drunk down at Moe's and one of his friends. And, you know, Barney's just sort of hungover and half drunk as he always is. And Homer is desperately trying to rally him as his partner to go f find th the baby with all of that urgency of the parent with a lost child. And and Barney says, well, you know, what if we make omelets first? And Homer's like, omelets? Are you crazy? Like, my kid is missing. And Barney says, are you sure? I make them with two cheeses. <laughs> Barney! I've lost a baby. It's the worst thing I've ever done. Don't worry, don't worry. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you an omelet. Just help me look. Are you sure I make them with two kinds of cheese? Come on. Wow. I use that all the time when there's just some incredibly petty appetite that I want to satisfy to which I'm willing to sacrifice all of the incredibly urgent life things that we as a family need to accomplish in the next like five freaking minutes. Are you sure I make them with two cheeses? And, um, but the other <laughs> one I really like, I love that both of these refer to my own prerogative, right? Um, which is, I would hope out of character, but perhaps totally in character. But there's a great quote from King Lear that when I first came across it, I was surprised you don't hear all the time. Because what do, I mean, I understand that the neither the play nor the worldview of Shakespeare includes this psychology within it, but it's simply our modern bougie version of it, which is that you're constantly thinking about like what you deserve and don't deserve and how the people have more than you don't deserve coincidentally exactly that proportion of what they have more than you have and the people who have less have somehow reflect some transcendental deficit about them or i don't know it's just like this constant kind of inner dialogue um about sort of like well, what what do i need and what do i not need and 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 of course one of the central episodes of lear is you know along the way to his realizing that without a throne he's nothing he's told that the number of troops it's regan or goneril is going to like vastly reduce the number of um soldiers at lear's disposal and they're sort of like well what do you and i think regan or goneril or one of the son son-in-laws says in this dismissive way like well, well why do you need 300 troops or whatever it is and lear just thunders back oh reason not the need and then he gives this kind of amazing mini soliloquy about like none of human life is reckoned in need if we were reckoning in need we'd be talking about 
like the tiniest, meagerest, most impoverished survivalist notion of human selfhood and identity. And it's so it's of course I trot that one out and thunder like Lear the instant we're not making the omelet with the two cheeses. So I kind of do <laughs> the you know, it's like kind of like you know, it's Simpson's shot Shakespeare chaser. Do you, the two cheeses line seems very useful, but do you use it only for food? situations or is it like anytime you want to do something mildly indulgent or indolent while pressing matters attend latter and it's just the swiss army knife of i'm just being an incredibly id driven creep right now okay all right why don't we uh why don't we move on and listen to the uh, next question hi this is chris my question is there was an episode a while ago where rick steves the travel guy came up and Dana said, I love Rick Steves. And then you all moved on. And I'm curious, what is your history with Rick Steves? Have you ever used one of his guides? Do you like him? What do you think about Rick Steves? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I love this is a great example of a good listener question. Just picking some minuscule little throwaway line from a long ago show that we don't even remember. And now we really have to drill down on, on the Rick Steves question. I mean, I will say that I've never used one of his travel guides. My my Rick Steves <laughs> fandom is entirely based on his TV personality. I mean, I don't use travel guides in general, but I just like a good TV travel show. And Rick Steves really knows how to do that. You know, somebody who's really enthusiastic about the place they're visiting, knows a lot about it, and just, you know, takes you on a virtual tour that makes you want to go there. Like Rick Steves can do that really well. Anthony Bourdain obviously could do that incredibly well in his various travel shows. And I think Stanley Tucci in that show we talked about, the CNN show that where he, he travels through Italy eating Italian food, does a similar thing. Just, I want some some jolly dude to, to walk down an imaginary street in Europe with. Maybe he's, Rick Steves has done stuff outside of Europe, but I'm really only familiar with his, his Europe um, travel stuff on TV. And yeah, I mean, I want to hear from Steve on this because he actually does travel for a living and write travel articles sometimes. But to me, what you want to virtually watch someone do on TV and how you yourself want to experience travel are completely different things. And to the extent I would use a travel guide, it would probably not be one that had a voice and a personality. It would be just the opposite. It would be the driest possible. Here's a book of maps of Paris, you know, and you can mm. find your own way through it. But in order to get inspiration for and, and energy and ideas about traveling, I, I love that kind of uh, personality and voice-based show. Oh, man. I mean, I guess the way I feel about Rick Steves is, is essentially how I feel about travel writing. And I don't think it's a stretch to say the moral ambivalences of doing it in an age of over-touristing and, um, and uh, climate change, that getting in an airplane and flying is you know, widely considered by scientists to be one of the very worst things you can do. And it's not just that you yourself are going on a trip to Tasmania, which is, I think, about as humanly far as you can go on planet Earth from New York City. It's certainly one of the furthest places. Okay, you've done that as an individual, that's fine. But putting it on the travel map, it's like I played my own small part in doing that. People generally didn't go to Tasmania uh, as tourists unless they were themselves Australians and and they were kind of camping like this is what the Australians said like camper van vacations you know um and uh in the 20 years since I read about it it's become a big destination for all kinds of people um and that believe me that was a coincidence I didn't make that happen in any way but I, I played a role in making that happen and it's like there are people flying from all over the world to 
you know, experience this locavore paradise, right? Because of all the wild variety of microclimates there, you can grow everything on this one island and beautifully. And it's like, yeah, like flying 17,000 miles to eat locally seems like a really screwed up way to try to square the circle of, you know, um, you know, living ethically um, while satisfying your bourgeois appetites. And so, and then the second thing is, you know, the Valhalla, the magic of travel writing is to go someplace early in its cycle, like really early in its cycle. So for example, Hobart, Tasmania, or, you know, it's like, I can't go to a travel editor and say, I want to write about Paris or London. I have to say, I want to write about, you know, this, you know, museum you've never heard of in Paris. That's actually the coolest one there. And it's, you know, if the Guardian wrote about it, even as recently as three years ago, it's dead in the water for whoever I'm pitching. So there's this premium on discovery, right? At the same time, like you could be initiating a cycle that just ends it. And, you know, you end up, you begin with this sweet little jewel of Europe that very few people go to Barcelona, and it ends the most overrun, like, you know, clotted sort of foreigner clotted city on the planet with people putting cardboard signs on their windows saying go like basically go home and i i I, so it's so rick steve's doing it incredibly well and like being somewhat i think because he's approaching a much more he's in a more mass medium approaching a more mass audience like he's later in the cycle than i am so it's just easy for me to go poo poo him but i'm just the first gentrifier right like i'm the villain at the beginning of the whole process but that said i also just have professional jealousy like he's a star he does it really well on tv he finds interesting places and he does it with it seems to me his heart in the right place and with good taste right so it's like fuck him (laughs) why don't i have that job You're Tell a bitter, really small feel, man, Steve. Peter. <laughs> Steven, a, a small, small man. <laughs> okay, but wait, I need you guys to explain the Rick Steves brand to me. Like, I feel like the, you know, it used to be that you could tell what stripe of person you were by which travel book you bought. Like, did you buy Fromers and you were going to spend a gajillion dollars for dinner? Or did you buy Lonely Planet because you were kind of like eco and hostile Or did you buy... Um, let's go because you like weirdly believed in the talents of Harvard college students and their, you know, hypothetical uh, frugality and uh, taste and judgment or whatever. Like, and Rick Steves is sort of, as someone who has her own very weird relationship with travel journalism and travel writing, which we can get to in a minute. I like trying to use all of these as little as possible. Like I really like to not know anything about where I'm going Mm -hmm. and then kind of, discover as though I just moved there. And so, but Rick Steves is kind of like, you want to spend a bunch, you might want to splurge on one nice dinner. Like you're not entirely hostile, but you're not entirely five star and you want to be discerning. You have some disposable income. It's kind, it's kind of like middle, right? Like what's the actual brand, the Rick Steves brand? Uh, I don't know. What would you say, Steve? I mean, he's on PBS, right? And public radio. That's generally how his, his, radio and TV stuff is distributed. So it's to that audience, right? It's people that are educated, you know, probably middle class, obviously people that can afford to even think about doing things like touring Europe. Uh, Right, but but, but not with ostentation or luxury at its core and kind of, I would say, as befitting those, you know, PBS and NPR, sort of upper middle brow with a kind of like sort of all-American guy-guy, you know, thing to it. That that makes him relatable to a pretty, you know, 
a pretty wide audience. Um, yeah, and I just, I mean, I just, I feel like he's a guy whose whose heart is in the right place. You know, he, speaking of the environment, is is known for you know talking a lot about trying to incorporate carbon neutrality into your travel as possible. He donates to environmental causes. He was very anti-Trump during the Trump administration, which I appreciated. He didn't have to go out on that limb at all. I don't know. To me, he just has a he has a good guy feeling. He's somebody who, if you bumped into him at your, your hostel in Amsterdam, <laughs> you would really enjoy your evening chatting with Rick Steves. I mean, so my, I, I think the question I have is sort of whether people use these books anymore. Like I... I remember going to the Greek islands one summer when I was backpacking in Europe and doing everything on like $7 a day. And I remember getting to like Mykonos, I think, and it just looked like a parliament ad. And I felt so disappointed that this thing I was seeing was something I had already seen so many images of. And it felt like I was like checking off this visual expectation box in my mind and ever since then, I like toss the travel section out the window. Like I do not, I do not seek like visual inspiration for where I'm going to go because I don't like the idea of going to confirm what I've seen photographically. I, I kind of like try to tuck verbal descriptions of places in my mind or what I know of their history in my desire to, you know, as I sort of stack up desires to go see places. And one place like that in particular is Rio. I've never been to Brazil. I'd love to go to Rio. Rio seems like one of those just jaw-dropping cities to behold from, you know, the you can't avoid it if you're as much of a fan of the um, Fast and Furious movies as I am. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so I have uh, images of Rio have crossed my eyeballs, but I like try to avert my eyes. Like truly, if you see Rio, I like look away because I want to go there someday and I want to be sort of surprised by it. And I like to kind of just go and stay somewhere and see what the interesting breakfast place is nearby. And I'm lucky to travel with my husband and others who plan and do and read. Um, but I, I, I have a weird aversion to information about travel, which is sort of dumb, but true. Um, other than I do use those New York Times 36 hours guides. I find them to be like, the right amount of information, lightly orienting, a couple wrecks, don't have to even follow them, but it gives you a general lay of the land of like, these are the six neighborhoods you should be thinking about. These are the four types of activities that people do here. Um, so I, I do use those. I have one thing to say about Rio, Julia, which is that if and when you do make it down there, please let me be one of your travel guides and I will give you some ideas. I mean, I haven't been there in more than 20 years, but I spent two summers living in Rio and really topographically, I guess would be the word, geographically, it's the most beautiful city I've ever been in. Just the way the landscape interacts with the city and the suddenness with which these huge hills come bursting out of the city. It is a little like San Francisco in that way, but, you know, just Mm -hmm. a much more um, spectacular and more saliently um, topographically diverse kind of space than San Francisco. Just a wonderful city. All right. Have we done it just this? I think so. Okay, let's move on. Um, Okay, next up we have a listener question that came in by email from Harry McLean, who writes, I'm a longtime listener and fan living in the UNESCO City of Literature, Melbourne, Australia. I would love for you to talk about what your favorite books about films are and give you a chance to plug your own. All right, Dana, I think this is a 
fat, slow pitch down the middle to you. So why don't you start? (laughs) Well, I mean, this whole year has been one long chance to plug my own. So I'll start with that when I get out of the way. Um, I'm not at all saying that this is one of the most important film books to read. But since you asked, I have a brand new book, well, this year, um, about Buster Keaton called Cameraman that is in stores now and coming out in paperback next year. And in the course of researching this book over the last six years, I read lots and lots of great books about film. So let me think of a few that I can recommend. I mean, I guess it depends on what you're looking for, but just a very basic film history that is extremely well written by two great film scholars who are also beautiful writers is called Film History and Introduction. It's a really common text in film classes in college and things like that uh, by Kristen Thompson and David Boardwell. Uh, David Boardwell, the latter of the two authors, also has a really great blog um, where he just writes about, you know, old film and films of the day. And he's just, he's sort of a, a graphomaniac. I mean, the guy just writes an unbelievable amount and it's always interesting and good. So that's my general tome recommendation. And then here are a couple of books that I often give to young people who are interested in film, who are graduating from film school or or the like. Um, there's a really beautiful book called The Conversations. I think we've maybe talked about it before on the show. That is uh, a series of conversations about film between two friends who also work in film and literature. Walter Murch, the great editor who edited Oh, my Lord. I mean, The Conversation, I think The Godfather movies, all three of them, uh, A Talented Mr. Ripley, Apocalypse Now, just one of the great editors and um, collaborators in the history of American film, um, is friends with Michael Ondaatje, the novelist who who wrote the novel that English Patient is based on, a movie Merch edited. So the two of them met on the set of The English Patient and started this series of conversations about film and culture, and eventually these were collected into a book. It's really unusual and beautiful. The conversations I recommend really highly. Sidney Lumet has a book called Making Movies, so it's movies from the point of view of a director, and it's one of the best books about you know the experience of bringing together the logistical hell that is a movie shoot and some of his experiences doing that. Um, And movie criticism. This will be my last one. Um, There's a collection called American Movie Critics, collected by Philip Lopate, the great essayist. And uh, he just has a wonderful taste and a great eye and knows a lot about the history of film criticism. So going all the way back to the silent era, he just picks some great um, movie reviews and and writing on on film through the decades, going all the way up to, you know, A.O. Scott is one of the last people collected in that book. So... Those are some different angles, I guess, depending whether you want, you know, film history, behind the scenes gossip or history of criticism. Oh, wow. Um, those are those are fabulous. I had a, a David Boardwell book on mine on the history of film style, um, which is more of the same. I mean, he's just a utterly lucid, approachable, stylistically approachable film academic who's really he real. I mean, he's just the great, to my mind, dean of academic film history, scholarly film history. Um, All right. So to that, I'd add sort of going down the waterfront here, a work of um, a sort of first person memoir about the monster of the film business, of course, Final Cut by Stephen Bach, about Mm, the disastrous making of uh, Heaven's Gate at the time, reputed to be the largest financial disaster. It sunk United Artists, a legendary film company that had been around for whatever it was, 60, 50 years. uh, it's just an amazing book. The writing of it, the grace of it, um, Bach's voice is wonderful. His light touch, his sense of irony and culpability. I mean, he greenlit the movie um, and went down with it. Uh, but uh, that's a, just a wonderful, wonderful book. And then um, as a work of criticism, you know, it's a funny choice in a way, and a lot of people would object to it. But sort of before Pauline Kael became Pauline Kael, the Titanic 
you know, presence at the New Yorker for, you know, the whatever it was, 10 or 15 golden years of the auteur in American Hollywood filmmaking. Um, you know, she was a veteran. She'd been around for a while before she got the job and doing extraordinary work. And it had more, it had wonderful, that same wonderful confidence to it and um, and verve in a way. But it was, it was, she was writing for unexpected outlets out of a passion and came less from on high before she got to the New Yorker. Let me put it that way. So I lost it at the movies is actually a wonderful book to read because it brings you back to Kale. You know, it has just some of the essays in that they're exemplary works of criticism for their captivating intelligence and sense of style and wit um, in their own right. And a person conveying their own passions while also writing a fairly, you know, rigorous, style of criticism um and then one more a novel what makes sammy run because at the heart of hollywood i think is a contradiction if i'm not totally wrong which is that nothing happens without the writer and the writer is somehow always at the very bottom of the totem pole in the movie business but you know by it's sort of a you know the the writer is sort of the butt of often the butt of jokes in Hollywood or at least it was traditionally it may not be anymore maybe you know he or she or they are exalted but um, but anyway and it gets at this weird contradiction of of because it's told from the point of view of a uh, it's a novel but I mean the writer in it is it's the novels written by Bud Schulberg you know and so it's obviously based partially on his experience and he's a screenwriter in it and he's. And he lives in this contradiction that the movie business is just, he's on, you know, it's back in the old day of the old studio system. He's actually on the lot producing copy on crazy deadline. And there's this, he perceives as an, it, a social type now in extremist, Sammy Glick, who's the essence of a completely empty self-promoting human being. And it's obviously an enduring social type in American history as we just had one as president. Um, but it's it's got a special sort of resonance or horrible void-like lack of resonance in Hollywood, right? The person who's just somehow attracted to that form of megalomania and is only self-promoting, but sort of has to pretend they're about making good movies or making movies good in order to feed their own ego, egomania. And it's the relationship between this writer who's sort of a traditional author i mean he's producing this novel that you're reading pitted against this kind of anti-author you know who, who, who who's using him in some way and it just i, I don't know I, I that book when i finally read it um I, I i thought it it just tells a lasting truth about the movies I think part of what this segment is teaching me is that I barely ever read books about movies. <laughs> I don't have as quite as long a list of recommendations for you guys. But I did think of a few, a couple of which we've discussed or I've mentioned on the show recently. I do think that um, our friend Mark Harris's Mike Nichols biography yeah. is just an amazing, amazing read and sort of a portrait of the evolution of American culture. It's about theater and film and about ambition Um but it's also just really well made as a as a thing to read, whether or not you count yourselves among people who read film books. Um, I also endorsed earlier this year The Mirage Factory, which is a portrait of early Los Angeles um, that's sort of a triple portrait of um, Amy Semple McPherson's uh, kind of religious group. 
um, the the kind of original water sins underlying Los Angeles as a location and the dawn of the movie business. So it's um, not quite a film book, but it's a good um, sort of civic look at the origins of film here and 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 how Los Angeles came came to be and part part of its character. Um, and then I will say. I do have Nobody's Perfect, which is a collection of Anthony Lane's criticism, largely film criticism, although it also includes a bunch of his book criticism as well. And I, you know, I think sort of the fashionable line on Anthony Lane is that he's a great writer of sentences who maybe should have been a book critic because he doesn't actually, he's better at writing sentences than in making sense of films. Maybe that's unfair. I feel like that's what like true film heads think of him. Dana, I won't put you on the spot. Um, and I've, I haven't read that book in years. Um, I'm not even sure I, where it is right now, but I remember as a young writer, you know, sometimes you read things that you can't pull off in order to whet your ambition. And I remember sometimes if I had a piece to write, I would go read a few of his reviews to just sort of instigate in myself sort of a fury <laughs> that I that I couldn't <laughs> write sentences that sharp, but that I'd better try. Um, and I do think just in terms of every single clause, line, bit of punctuation being intended to sparkle your nervous system and entertain you and make you think and prod you. It's very active prose. Um, it's very energetic prose. It's very tart prose. Um, so I have, I did have that relationship with that book at one time. I have not gone back to read it in years. I wonder what I would think of his criticism now that I'm older and wiser. Um, but I, I got to go get myself a copy of that book. He's quite a stylist. The line that I always think of with, with Anthony Lane is something that he wrote about, I think it was the Phantom of the Opera movie. It's just one phrase, but he says, watching this movie is like being asphyxiated by brocade. <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing he's good at, just, you know, the, the, the mot juste right when you need it. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to another voicemail. So there is currently a ton of French-sized hole in my heart as I am desperately waiting for a new book to be announced, um, I would love any more cozy mysteries or favorite genre recommendations. I feel like I need to take this one since I'm the biggest genre reader among us, which is why I have um, such a lack of erudite recommendations about film, probably. Um I, too, have a Tana French-sized hole in my reading list. She remains my absolute favorite combiner of actually good writing, real psychological acuity, and pretty damn good thrillers that honestly actually are a little bit of, of anthropological travel writing as well with her kind of expat perspective on Ireland. Um, but a couple other series, none of which is quite as good, but which have um, filled the plot, please give me plot, but also make it readable hole in my reading list. Uh, one are the books of Ruth Ware. These are a little bit schlockier. She's being pitched by her publisher as sort of a modern day Agatha Christie. And they do have that quality of being sort of pot boilery. And the characterizations are a little bit more pat and thin than, than Tana French. But wow, these are the books that have kept me up at night. Like once you get 
once you get 60% through, it's like a long slide, like stay up till four in the morning, can't stop turning the pages. They're very good. The best one is One by One, which is about a corporate retreat that takes place in a Swiss chalet. And then there's an avalanche and it's basically 10 little Indians, but uh, quite excellent. Um, And then finally, I'm on like a months long Michael Connolly tear. And, you know, Michael Connolly writes detective novels set in Los Angeles. Um, I read a few of the very first ones when I first got here. And I think I didn't know quite enough about Los Angeles yet to catch all of his references. And I also think his early books were not as good. They were like a little bit macho and a little bit, um, they weren't that interesting. But I've been reading lately the most recent I don't know, basically everything he's written since 2013 forward. I happened to pick up a book from 2013 and really liked it. So I just kind of kept going forward. And I've been really impressed with him kind of having the opposite of the like famous successful author gets too big to edit and keeps phoning in the same thing over and over again. Like each book is really structured around a different idea, uh, absorbs the way the world is changing, introduces new characters that reflect the diversity of LA, tries to do that with sensitivity. Um, Even just sort of what each book is about. There's a book where a senior detective is sort of teaching young detectives how to do their job. Then there's a book that's about um, the tension between doing investigative work as a defense, you know, as a detective, essentially for prosecutions and doing doing detective work on behalf of defense lawyers. Like they're, they're, I don't know, they're just much more varied and interesting and complicated than they need to be given how successful he is. And I really admire that. Uh, those are great. I want to make that list. I need more of this in my life. I mean, I I have become a huge admirer of Ian Rankin, but his I wouldn't call his cozy. They're the opposite of cozy. I mean, his mysteries that take place in uh, Edinburgh and feature this sort of very tough, you know, jaded um, detective are beautifully written and very well, uh, very finely observed studies of the sociology of, of modern day Edinburgh, um, as well as being good, interesting mysteries, but they're, they're not cozy at all. They're not draw. They're sort of anti drawing room, if anything, but it, it, the, the more it's been a little while now, like maybe 10 years, but the very first novel by Eric Ambler that in many people point to is the origin of the modern spy novel, um, uh, epitaph for a spy has a kind of, it. if I had to guess it was probably written in the thirties or forties, um, thirties would be my guess, but it has a drawing room quality to it. Uh, sort of old world drawing room quality of yes, the, the stakes are large world, you know, sort of geopolitical in some heavily implied sense, but um, but it takes place in a very insular, small European microcosm, as I recall. And so this sort of politics of the small and the politics of the large come together in this super suspenseful way. That is an amazing book. It's short, deft, uh, and really one of the better works of genre fiction I've ever read. And I think it scratches the cozy itch. I'm making notes as you all talk. I think I have the least to contribute in this category because I really don't read genre fiction that often. And certainly if I am drawn to a, a detective novel or something that would fall under the aegis of of 
genre fiction, it's it's not cozy. <laughs> My favorite detective novels and, and things in that genre are the really dark ones. And Raymond Chandler is somebody I once went on a big tear of reading essentially everything. I mean, everything by Raymond Chandler is extraordinary. And just his his virtuosity as a writer is, is unbelievable. Uh, but that's not cozy. <laughs> and then another genre novel that I love from, you know, similarly from mid-century America is, and I wonder if either of you know this, Night Has a Thousand Eyes by Cornell Woolrich. Have either of you read that? Mm, Extremely no. dark and uncozy book. It is really, I mean, just existentially bleak beyond belief, but gorgeously written. And the premise of it is this interesting mix of almost um, crime and fantasy. It's about a, a detective and uh, and who was trying to solve a mystery that involves a con man who's clairvoyant. And so part of the question of the book is, you know, is he conning people or can he actually see the future? And the detective himself kind of gets drawn into this question, right? Is there is there or is there not a supernatural power, you know, element to the to the crime he's trying to solve? It's incredible. It's super page turner and gorgeously written. But because those are so uncozy and those are really going to suspend you over the brink of despair, I have to throw in just an extremely, extremely cozy genre writer who doesn't really write mysteries. And that's P.G. Woodhouse. You just you can't go wrong if you're going to go on mm, a kick true. of P.G. Woodhouse reading. And it's extremely um, <laughs> it takes place in what what I consider one of the most pleasingly kind of conflict free worlds in literature. <laughs> so the conflicts in P.G. Woodhouse novels are always something about, you know, is Duchess so and so going to come to the tea party? And what on earth shall happen if, you know, the engagement is broken between Sir such and such and his lady? And uh, and they're just they're very silly um, but they're extremely funny, and uh, they're sort of addictive. Once you start on P.G. Woodhouse, you, you can't stop till you've read a whole bunch. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a really good suggestion. I guess I should also stipulate that none of my recs are particularly cozy either. Like the co- And honestly, a ton of French isn't very cozy. What's cozy is you're not there in the book being <laughs> murdered or being threatened with murder. Like, that's what makes reading mysteries cozy is like, you're like, I'm in my bed under my comforter, not being murdered. <laughs> like, <that's> the <laughs> contrast rather than the actual book. Okay, I think our next one is uh, an email. So Dana, maybe you'd read it for us. Yeah, this is a great question. It's a bit long, um, so stick with me through it. But it's you need a little of the background to uh, to get through to the question. This is a question from a listener named Chris, and he says, I play the violin with orchestras and ballet and opera companies in Philadelphia and Denver and was well and truly excited to see Tar, but found it nearly unwatchable because of how much it got wrong about the classical music world. And he goes on to enumerate some of the inaccuracies. He then says, my question is, does this kind of veracity matter at all? Did I enjoy Black Swan because I'm not a ballet dancer or Spotlight because I'm not a journalist? Are there movies that bother you because they get the details wrong, even though getting them right would make the plot less interesting? I mean, I will say that I grew up in part in the Boston Globe newsroom, or at least visiting it really regularly. My parents met in the Boston Globe cafeteria. They were both Globe journalists until I was probably in fifth or sixth grade and when my mom moved on. Um, and Spotlight's commitment to reproducing that office was bananas like bananas like there there was a little break room where they have cake at some point and it's like I was in that break room where they used to keep little teeny tiny cartons of chocolate milk which was like why you went to why you were excited to go visit my parents at the office is because of the teeny tiny cartons of chocolate milk um so it was delightful to see kind of like seeing a dollhouse of your childhood or something 
did it make the movie better? I don't know. <laughs> like, it's uncanny when they get it right. And I think more broadly, that movie got a lot right about journalistic process, about the tenacity required of investigative journalism, about how investigative journalism has evolved in the last 25 years in terms of who it listens to and whose stories it tries to tell, um, about the kinds of pressures that can be exerted upon investigative journalists uh, uh, and the kind of toll that's taken on investigative journalists when they're pursuing that kind of story. Like, the, the accuracy helped. It might have been distracting for me if it weren't accurate. I'm not sure the accuracy is what made that movie good. And similarly, we got into a debate with um, Jamel when we talked about She Said a few weeks ago, in which he argued that it would have been nice for balance if uh, Carrie Mulligan's character had done some more of the reporting trips in the you know, second third of the movie when it gets a little bit more heavily weighted towards the Jodie Cantor character. Um, and you know, I counter-argued that the point there is to show working women because the whole story is about the effect of sexual harassment on working women and what it means to be a working woman. And the the reason that Jodie Cantor did that reporting is because Carrie Mulligan had an infant at home. Um, and yet, despite being unable to go to Wales, she was crucial to getting the story. And so anyway, I, I think it I think whether it matters depends on what kind of story you're trying to tell. But I'm very curious what you two think of this. I have to say, this is like one of those hobby horses I've ridden so often over the course of the Gabfest. I hope people don't tune out what I'm about to say. But it, let me come at it from a slightly different angle, which is, you know, In Cold Blood is a mind-blowingly good book. It made Truman Capote deservedly a superstar, a literary superstar. Um, it's also substantially falsified and not true, right? And it's uh, large, important parts of it. I mean, much of it is reported and 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 totally true. I mean, but it was called, I believe, it was called the first nonfiction novel, and it was sold as a work of nonfiction. But novel only meant that can you believe this true story conforms so beautifully to the conventions uh, of a of a novel and delivers the kind of sat narrative satisfactions of a work of fiction, um, and also just the texture of the writing and the literary ambition of the writing. It was something new. And actually, I think it's very worthwhile reading. But if you were, for example, teaching it as I think you should to a long-form journalism class, you would then engage with the ethical question of the manifest untruths in the book and compare what he did and how he did it with what we now know to actually have happened, right? And then I think there's just a larger philosophical question of like, why do you care? And and I think it has to be this, that there's, it, let's say you're a historian or a journalist working for a notoriously scrupulous, you know, ethically scru scrupulous outfit like the New Yorker or the Times, which does really make a good faith effort to factually verify everything you say. And using a set of facts that actually happened, you managed to produce what Capote produced or a facsimile of it, which is a beautifully told narrative. You've done something with consummate skill while telling the reader the truth. And what the reader gets on the other side of that transaction is and factual enlightenment, which they're grateful for, and they get the genre thrill. And that's like a split in bowling, right? Like you've done something extraordinary and given them something extraordinary. If the veracity isn't there, you've actually falsified their experience of what you've written, not just 
the factual record of it, right, behind it, underlying it. And and I think that that's where the ripoff happens, right? It's not just that you're cheating history, right, which I think is important, but you're, you've really cheated the reader. And so what, what the reason it's become a hobby horse that I ride is – we see based on a true story, based on a true story, based on a true story, it's appended to a third of what we watch now. And there are certain things that I, I, it's also a funny thing because one of my favorite pieces of TV, and Julia, I know you agree, of the last like 10 years was uh, Amanda Seyfried in the um, dropout, which is based on a true story. And I, I didn't, there was something about the manifest TV-ness of it and the and the kind of deliciousness of it that made me understand I wasn't watching a purely factual, but, and it was just, you know, how much did it deviate? If it deviated totally and I was work, walk, watching a work of nonfiction, it just would have lacked its power, right? So it's it's just, I guess I don't, Dana, have a, have a clear, bright line answer to this question, but veracity somehow is very important to me and it damages my ability to enjoy things that are purportedly, you know, quote unquote, based on a true story. Yeah, I think to me, it, it has to do with trusting the the filmmaker or the showrunner actors. I mean, it's trusting the, the cast and crew and team of people that are bringing you the story to have done the work on their end, which doesn't necessarily mean they're replicating moment for moment everything that happened obviously there's condensation in a story like the dropout right i mean events that happened over a period of years are condensed into a shorter time or maybe there's a composite character who didn't really exist in real life and that that's part of being able to turn this into a narrative that is you know has a beginning middle and end and a shape to it but you have to trust that in the process of doing that shaping a lot of um, serious work was put into thinking about the world they're showing you. And that's where what I would say in defense of Tar, as someone who's not from the classical music world, uh, made it effective for me, I, is, that I, is that I felt that Todd Field and Kate Blanchett and all the people that worked on that film had thought through very carefully what the rules of their world was going to be. You know, so there may be, for example, I didn't read those parts of the email, but there may be uh, elements in the audition scene that are not really how an orchestra audition would go, right? And maybe that's going to bug you if you're somebody from that world. But I felt like I learned so much about the the ethics and just the um, the milieu of classical music from learning that movie that I trust, you know, and I suppose I could watch it with this listener and he would tell me not to trust those things. But I placed my faith in the filmmaker to um, to have done his work to introduce me into that world, if that makes sense. And I mean, then there are times, as in she said, I mean, she said maybe, you know, have more veracity to it than Spotlight. I think it's a less good movie. I wasn't here on the show the week that you talked about she said. But to me, the failure of that of that movie is that it doesn't quite understand the narrative part of things. You know, maybe it needed a bit more fictionalization. There was a hell of a lot of talking on the phone and driving around in cars to go meet sources and things that no doubt happen when you're a shoe leather reporter trying to investigate a story, but that don't necessarily make for the greatest cinema. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer for In Cold Blood and the answer for tar are opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Like if you are presenting what you're doing as journalism and as a reporting of the facts, the obligation to be absolutely authentic to me gets higher the more your narrative chops are. You know, I mean, we've talked a bunch about my um, just delight and 
mesmerization at, at Patrick Redden Keefe's Empire of Pain book, which is an incredible work of investigative journalism that is an absolute potboiler to read. And one of the things that makes it so extraordinary is you just trust the rigor of the facts underlying it all. And and that's what makes the fact that it is, it does kind of resolve itself into this incredible family narrative, um, all the more impressive and incredible to behold. Um, you know, with Tar, Tar is sort of the other end of the spectrum because Tar isn't a movie about the classical music world. It's a movie that's using the classical music world to say something that I honestly don't totally still understand about power, art, ego. Um, it, it, it could have been a movie about ballet. It could have been a movie about race car driving. Like it, it's, um, it doesn't matter that it's a classical music movie. And so the bits and bobs about the audition scene feel, feel immaterial to me. Um, the part in the middle is this sort of like using true life stories for IP. So Spotlight, she said, um, and uh, The Dropout, the Amanda Seyfried uh, version of Elizabeth Holmes story, those are all kind of in the middle, right? Like, and if you if you think of Spotlight and she said as sort of two movies in part because they're about journalism, probably feel an even deeper obligation to be factual um, than than not. Those those honestly both, even though I like both movies and agree that Spotlight is a far better film, they're both kind of dramatizations. And the thing I liked about She Said is that it's making an argument about why it matters for women not to get harassed in the workplace and like what women are capable of in the workplace when their um, sexuality and reproductive freedoms are respected. But the dropout is a little bit closer. It's sort of using the story of Elizabeth Holmes to tell a narrative about, again, ambition, power, like it, 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 it feels closer. So I think, I think to me in fiction, in sort of creative works that are not journalism, which I don't think she said, or the dropout are, how much authenticity matters depends on what the heck the thing is trying to do. Mm. Yeah. Beautifully done. I agree. Okay, should we go for our last question? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, Slate Culture Gabfest. This is Laura calling from Los Angeles. I'm a huge fan. Uh, this year we've seen several movies where filmmakers have mined their own childhoods to put art on screen. I'm thinking of The Fablemans and Steven Spielberg, Armageddon Time from James Gray, even recently Alfonso Cuaron's Roma or Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird which got me thinking. So my question to you guys is, if there was going to be a film made about your childhood, what is a scene you would absolutely have to include? And um, just an FYI, if there were films made about all of your childhoods, I would be first in line to see them. Thanks so much and have a great holiday. Bye, guys. Ooh, oh, I love that question. That is so interesting. It's also one of those questions that, in total bad faith, I want to hear your answers desperately, but don't want to offer my own. So, <laughs> so in in that, in that spirit, Julia Turner, what? Uh, yeah, what? I definitely have one answer here that I'm not sharing with you or anybody. But um, two two things that came to mind. I mean, for one thing, I do not intend to ever write a memoir. I barely. I I don't want to write a book. I don't want to make a movie. Like I don't. 
I don't think I want to tell the story of my life in any form, fiction or non. I did actually just write for the first time, maybe ever, definitely in a long time. I wrote like a memoiristic essay for the LA Times. I wrote about um, tension in my family over this German potato ball recipe that my sister and I insist must be made every Thanksgiving. Um, so I actually literally just turned the stuff of my life into a public uh, piece. It's on the LA Times site. You should go check it out. We'll put a link on the show page. Um, so that was a new mode. It, it was pleasurable. It did not make me want to do more of this. But there are two two scenes that would make for drama in a movie about my life. One is my family never really traveled for tourism as as kids. We visited family. Any vacation, we either visited my grandmother in Santa Riches, we visited my grandparents in, in Connecticut or when they retired to Florida, Florida. Um, the number of trips we took that were not to a, either of those destinations or just renting this one beach place in Massachusetts near us, like we took vacations, but we didn't do tourism maybe is the way to say it. Um, but the one exception to that, which I think was very foundational for me, is we and an, another family that we grew up with rented a kind of ramshackle house in Tuscany for three weeks the summer between fifth and sixth grade. Um, and it was this real kind of exception to that. It was my only time going out of the country before college. It was just a real exception to how we conducted ourselves otherwise. And it was amazing. We cooked, we ate, we drove around to different little Tuscan towns, we went to Florence, we, um, you know, my, we rented a car randomly that turned out to be a Lencia, which my dad had a lot of fun driving around curvy roads. Um, there were pine nut trees outside and the, and we would sort of crack the pine nuts out of their casings. And I just have all these memories of it. I went on to study Italian as the only, is the first modern foreign language I studied after, um, after I learned Latin. I went back to Italy. Uh, I still think maybe I would take every vacation in Italy forever, <laughs> except for all the other places I want to go. Like super, super formative uh, experience because it was so unusual in my childhood. But I remember getting there the first night and, you know, we'd rented this place sort of sight unseen with whatever information was available in, in 1989. And um, we got there and there were sort of these like grungy 70s, these corduroy sofas with cigarette burns all over them. And there were these huge, horrifying caterpillars like crawling all over the walls. <laughs> and we'd been on this very, very long journey. We'd flown through, I don't know, some other European city. And then we rented the car and then we drove for, for hours. So we were all exhausted. And I remember I was like 10 and my mom was so disappointed. Like she just wept and she was really, you know, just like, it was not there. You know, they clearly like saved up to do this one special trip. And then the thought of spending weeks in this like place that was so depressing, um, in its interiors upon first aspect exhausted. She just like kind of had a little meltdown. And I remember being 11 and being, feeling like the mature one for the first time and being like, mm. it's going to be okay. We're in this cool place. We'll move the caterpillars outside. We'll put a sheet mm. over the, like it was one of the first memories I have of like consoling her and telling her it was going to be all right. And I just, you know, it's like that first memory of being the grown up in the relationship with your, with your grown up. Um, so that's one. 
Oh, that was very cinematic. I can easily see that in a movie. The the, the moldy couch and the caterpillars and the crying mom. It's 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 a great. Uh, it's a very illustrative scene. Uh, as as told, I wish I had something good. The, the listener who left a voicemail left, and we didn't play this. Left left as her example that she remembers the Northridge earthquake in California in 1994. I think it was when she was a small child, and it's one of her earliest memories. I wish I had something that dramatic, uh, an event that mattered to the world that I could remember being part of. But the thing that occurred to me that was just a sort of illustrative story of who I was as a kid is extremely domestic and dull kind of moment. But it's just it's become a funny story in my family. And I think it's a good character establishing moment, if nothing else, which is that when we were little, my mother used to occasionally get these pastries, these delicious pastries from HEB, which is a sort of fancy grocery store chain in San Antonio. And once in a while, when we got home from school, she would still be at work, but she would have left these pastries on the counter for us. We called them chocolate goops, and they were delicious. They were sort of like <laughs> this um, this coffee flavored custard inside of a like a, a puff pastry with with chocolate on the outside. And so it was this rare treat when we would have chocolate goops waiting for us when we got home from school. But it was, as it turned out years later, not as rare as I thought it was growing up because apparently my brother and sister habitually, when they were sitting on the counter when we got home from school, would split the third one and not tell me they were there at all because I was always in my room reading. (laughs) So because I was reliably daydreaming off in a book somewhere and not available, they would just spot them on the counter, share the third one, throw away the wrappers and never tell me they were there. (laughs) And I don't think this news was broken to me until, you know, we were in our 20s and no longer in the position to ever have chocolate goops again. So Thanks a lot, bro and sis. But I think that's, I mean, that's an autobiographical moment simply because it establishes, you know, what I was doing so much of the time in my childhood and how much that sort of took me out of, made me oblivious to uh, to the events around me. I love that. <laughs> that Steve, is what so you got? good. <sighs> okay. I had, uh, let me go with this one. So, intertidal. 1972, let's say. 90, no, no, it's 1971, 1971. And um, a little boy is being dressed by his mother in a preposterous little outfit, a little sailor suit. And all the little cutesy, overthought details of it being put into absolutely perfect place. And then they go and they join the father typical sort of 50s style though we're in the 1970s you know breadwinner dad sort of very 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 proper turned out homemaker mom and an older sister in her little sunday best dress and then they walk down together take an elevator down in the apartment building walk down park avenue together and go to the presbyterian church right on park avenue sit in a pew and sing a hymn when the little boy looks over and sees the girl from his Sunday school class, Vicki Chandler, looking over at him, and the little spark in her eye sparks something in his eye. And later that morning, at uh, some sort of Sunday school-like gathering, Vicki Chandler convinces him that she, that he's been invited to her house for after Sunday school and to come and play and that everyone's given the proper permissions. 
And so he goes with Vicki Chandler back to her house. And together they put a blanket over the dining room table and play underneath the table. And it's this enormously liberating experience for the boy in the sailor suit to escape from the clutches of Park Avenue and into this far looser, more semi-Bohemian household where you can actually construct such things as tents in the out of the dining room table in a blanket, only to discover later that Vicki Chandler had been lying all along and his parents are in a panic and have dialed there wasn't 911 back then, I don't think. Or maybe there was. There wasn't. Was there 911 back in 71? Whatever. And are totally freaking out about their missing child. And it turns out I was kidnapped by Vicki Chandler. Um, <laughs> hence, <laughs> hence igniting the essential dialectic of my life, which is this preposterously uptight, spoiled child of the white upper middle class, mid-century upper middle class, desperately looking for escape. But in the end, victim only is a total passivity at the hands of other women. No, 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 got that. <laughs> Liberated by the uh, the cleverness of other women. Yes, there you go. Exactly. Beguiled by the promise and the cleverness of other women. Anyway, something like that. Um. Oh, my gosh. These are all very cinematic. They're, they, it's funny because they're scenes. They're not plot. Like the one I abandoned is... Um, uh, when I was the editor of the weekly newspaper in my high school, there was a kid in one of the dorms who dropped acid and went on a rampage with a knife. And, you know, our reporters, like, figured out what happened and who it was. And we had the story. And um, we had to negotiate with the principal about whether we were going to publish the kid's name or not. Uh, and... Um, we were technically not the school paper. We were like independently funded. So they couldn't, it wasn't, they didn't actually have the authority to control what we published. Um, and also that principal was my best friend's mom, but we had like a lot of long wrestling sessions in her office. So that was, that was plot, but not really seen <laughs> in quite the same way. All right, well, that's it for our call-in show for this uh, New Year's. And I want to give a very, very warm and sincere thank you to everyone who sent in a question, either via email or voicemail or social media, however you did it. We really appreciate it. Without them, as with Strut, it's uh, user-generated content, uh, which we just get to bounce off of. Um, but thank you very much for that. Can and I know something else about the questions that we got, yeah. Steve? Mm-hmm. Just that if you if your question didn't get answered, it's going into our pile for future Slate Plus questions. So keep on listening. It's very likely that looking for listener questions, we will at some point dig into that archive and answer a few. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, as always, thanks. Uh, thanks, Julia. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Dana. It was fun, Steve. Yeah, very fun. Um, you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nick Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today, we take one last question from a longtime listener, James Callen. 
Hello, Slate Culture Gap Fest. This is James Catlin. Has there ever been a segment or are there any segments that you regret doing on the show? I, for whatever reason, I don't know what that would be, but I'm curious, not just, you know, that wasn't as interesting as we thought, but especially in retrospect, I wish we had not done that. Um, Thanks. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Season's greetings. All of those. Thanks. I think we all had the same answer to this question. Uh, Dana, do you want to take a crack at describing it? (laughs) Yes, this is a a visit to cringe past. Thanks a lot, James. I think all three of us on hearing that question immediately lighted upon our infamous iPad segment from whatever year the iPad came out. You can look it up. But the iPad was the hot new thing. It was a different kind of technology of, of home computer technology than had existed before, the tablet. And... Media was covered with uh, coverage of the iPad, so we were trying to think of how to give a twist to our coverage, and we decided that we would do an unboxing segment, a live unboxing where we would order an iPad through Slate, um, open it up on the air, and play around with it and talk about the results. But not having ever used a tablet before, as no one had, uh, we didn't realize that you don't just, or at the time you did not just, take an iPad out, plug it in, and immediately start playing around with it. You had to pair it with another device. You know, there was a whole long process of, um, you know, booting it up and telling it where to go and what to do and obviously connecting it to internet and all of that stuff. And we just simply did not have time to do that in our segment. (laughs) And we had a little research done about the iPad where we could talk about other people's responses, but really the meat of our segment was supposed to be this unboxing gimmick, and it just completely flopped. And uh, I remember getting <laughs> such mockery in, in our reader feedback, and I'm sure deservedly so, and we didn't really have a plan B. That's an important thing to know. If, you're, if your gimmick segment doesn't work, have something else in your pocket to talk about, because we just ended up airing it like that. And the fact that there are some listeners, no doubt, out there that stuck with us after the iPad segment is, you know, something for which I'm very grateful. So that was that was definitely one regret. I don't know if you have any others, either of you. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to have been like talking for more than a decade. And there's something about saying stuff out loud that feels a little less um, carved in stone than writing things. I'm sure I've said so much stupid shit on this show, probably including last week. But um, I don't I don't have a ton of like opinions expressed or um, views held that I, that I can think of that I, um, you know, that I would go back and change. But I do, I do remember the feedback on that segment. We were trying something and it did not work. Um, I will say we also got a lot of negative feedback around that same time when for some reason we had Jody Rosen on and we all ended up talking in French accents for a while, which feels feels very far away from the show we currently make um and some people found that very irritating but i remember just like dying laughing and <laughs> quite hysterical and i can't remember why we did that or would have done that or would have thought it was appropriate to publish that but i think we can chalk both of those up to the um you know true experimentalism of the early days of the culture gab fest Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the Wild West of podcasting when we started. So I'm sure there's plenty of segments where we didn't quite know what it was to make a show and how different topics would fit together. I mean, obviously, we have now a lot more practice on what our particular show looks like or what we would like it to look like. And we were kind of making it up as we went along back then. So again, gratitude to anyone who stuck with us. I can think of a pretty recent segment that I think was framed wrong. And this was kind of my fault because it was my suggestion for a segment. It was when we, I think, Julia, you were out this week. It was during your maternity leave, maybe. But it was when we talked about 
um, ebooks and why they had not cut, caught on. And I feel like that segment, maybe because we didn't read the right prep for it, or I'm not sure why, but it came out framed as if I, as if we were saying, ebooks are terrible and people who read them are wrong. And here's why. When I think the question I had wanted to go in with was more like, mm. why is it that you know, 15 years or something after the invention of this technology, it's still only 10% of the market, right? Just a, a, a maybe more of an industry question about what is it about ebooks that has not caught on and not kind of an individual condemnation of, of anyone who chooses to read in that form, if that makes sense. I do remember being on leave but getting the emails about that segment and being like, what the fuck did those guys do? <laughs> All of ebook readerdom is pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Steve, any particular regrets you have or would care to share about oh, any God. any particular I, people or famous cultural figures? It's just too revealing for me to revisit this, but I guess I <laughs> will. <laughs> the GMO segment with Will Saladin. Oh, my God. You know, can I just say in my own defense that living in the country... <laughs> With, at the time, probably two little kids. The night sets in at 2 p.m. in the winter, and a man turns his face toward his own darkness sometimes. And I think maybe I was going through a little bit of a patch when we did that segment. And then secondly, I'd moved up here because I got was getting to know farmers who were doing sustainable agriculture. And some of them were sort of evangelical about it. Many of them were very pragmatic about it, but they just didn't want to, they were just interested in something as far away from gigantic scale, you know, epic scale industrial farming using augmented inputs as anything in the world. And Will, God bless his heart, is just like, it is like going up against, and I say this admiringly, it's going up against argumentatively, rhetorically against Spock. It's like, you know, just forget it. There's this, you know, total sort of Empyrean remove from ordinary human foibles, intellectual, you know, fallibility or something. And it, I was just getting this kind of wall of like, no, this is your global warming. You are completely irrational in this commitment. And I just remember I lost my shit. I think it's the only time in the history of the show I just effectively 100% lost my shit on mic. And enough of it was left in the show in order just to get the fucking segment you know, into the can, the people emailed in, like quite a few people rightly saying, why did you ever do that? Like, what the hell? Why would you ever treat a guest of the show that way? And at one point, I think Dana called me and said, I'm asking as a friend, are you okay? <laughs> oh, God, it was just so terrible. I mean, I feel really bad because it just was a terrible segment. I responded emotionally to something that deserves a serious hearing. And, and I think a defense, like my position deserved a rational defense, not a, a, a super subjective, you know, highly um, charged one. And, um, and thirdly, you never, ever, ever treat a guest that way, right? I mean, he had a serious argument to make and was making it well. And anyway, so that to me is like, I, that's a once a year I have to stop lathering up in the shower just to sort of freeze in regret and shame. Oh, man, I'd forgotten that one. That was when Will did this, like, kind of deep dive, like, meta-research review of the arguments against genetically modified food and really came out arguing that 
uh, it was kind of anti-science to um, reflexively dismiss uh, genetically modified food. But I I remember helping top edit that story of Will's and feeling like I was, um, uh, I don't know, refereeing something I did not expect at all. Uh, that was that was a fraught conversation. Mm. I do remember that one. Um, all right. Well, yeah. Steve didn't take my Taylor bait, so I guess we'll lay that one aside. But um, <laughs> thank you so much, Slate Plus listeners, for uh, sending in your great questions, for supporting our show, for listening to it, for supporting Slate and its wonderful journalism. We will see you soon. Happy New Year.